There's a, a comedian uh, named Emo Phillips, and he once uh, told the following uh, brief story. Here's how it goes. He said, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. There's so much to live for. Like what? The man asked. Well, are, are you religious? He said, yes, I am. I replied, me too. Are you Christian? Yes, he said. Well, are you Protestant or Catholic, I asked. Protestant, he replied. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist, he said. Well, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord, I asked. <laughs> Baptist Church of God. Wow, me too. Are you Original Baptist Church of God or Reformed Baptist Church of God? <laughs> Reformed, he said. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformed Baptist of Church 1879, or Reformed Church of God 1915? He said, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God 1915. So I thought a moment, and I replied, Die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> I wish I'd written that joke. It's really very funny. <laughs> but it points to something painful, at least to me. Christians have had a hard time getting along with each other since the very beginning. And on this point, from one version of the Bible, here's what Paul wrote to the fledgling Christian community in Corinth. Paul writes, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other. You're acting like infants. When one of you says, I'm on Paul's side, and another says, I'm for Apollos, aren't you being totally infantile? And here Paul is challenging the Christians in Corinth to get over their divisions. And then in Paul's letter to the people in Galatia, he writes, in Christ's family there can be no division no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. You are all equal. Now, in an extremely patriarchal society at the time, along with the resultant divisiveness, Paul's statement about unity is extraordinary. And then in excerpts from our reading today, Paul writes, you were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together both outwardly and inwardly. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. As we can see from these earlier letters, I mentioned a moment ago that unity in Christian community has been a challenge from the beginning, and that is certainly so. And since those years so long ago, look what has happened to Christians worldwide. Here's what an article of Christianity Today says. It says, in 2001, the World Christian Encyclopedia counted, listen to this, 33,830 denominations worldwide. And with the amount of debate and division over theology and orthodoxy since then, that number is undoubtedly higher. The article goes on, but is this myriad of denominations a sign of chronic division? Or is it, as some argue, the prime example of the church working together? And I'd have to say, personally, I don't see this as a sign of unity or simple diversity but as a reflection of painful disunity, discord that I believe breaks God's heart and hurts us all. 
few years ago, my wife, Regina, and I were in Bethlehem just after the Christmas season celebrations, and we were there to visit the Church of the Nativity to see the site of Jesus' birth, and the church which stands there, some of the parts date all the way back to the year 327. It's been there for a long time. It was rebuilt in the 500s, but it dates back to 327. The Church of the Nativity is managed by three major branches of Christianity, and its oversight is complex, nuanced, and very politicized. And as I was standing just beyond the entrance to the church, I looked up toward the high ceilings. It was striking, yet it was strange that some of the windows up high were in need of repair. So in response to a question I asked, a guy told me that the windows near the ceiling indeed needed to be replaced, but it had not yet happened. And so I said, why? He said, because the clergy representing different churches often get into fistfights when discussing that project. <laughs> Here I stood near the birthplace of Jesus, the King of Peace, God's expression of love, and yet those managing the church acted in ways that were antithetical to Jesus. Now we, like all generations before us, live in extraordinary, wonderful, amazing, yet deeply troubling times. There has always been good and bad, and as it reads in the book of Ecclesiastes, what has been done will be done again. What has been done will be done again. What has been will be again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Despite that fact, I believe that in the midst of our current Christian division, we do not have to sit idly by accepting the status quo of disunity. In fact, as followers of Jesus, right here in this community of faith in Somas Chapel, we can be different if we so choose. And to me, this is very good news. Well, several weeks ago, you know that I began this sermon series, and the question posed within this series is very straightforward, and that is how can we as followers of Jesus impact and influence the lives of people around us in such a way that things change? And as I mentioned, studies show that on average, you and I will meet 80,000 people during the course of our lifetime. That's an amazing number of human encounters. And what is great is if you and I are very intentional about those encounters and how we manage those encounters as followers of Jesus, we can impact and influence people, albeit imperfectly, for the better, even in a three-second encounter. In the first week of the series, I asked us to imagine how it would be if the love of God, love others, and loving ourselves characterized our walk with Jesus. I asked us to imagine household, churches, neighborhoods, nations, businesses, where love of God, love of people, and love of self is the way. Last week, I asked us to imagine how it would be if forgiveness toward others and towards ourselves characterized our walk with Jesus, and I delved into forgiveness. And then I asked us to imagine households, and churches, and neighborhoods, and nations, and businesses where forgiveness is the way. And so the question for this week is to imagine Christian unity when Christian unity is the way. And while we may not be able to change the world, you and I certainly can have a massive impact in the lives of those right around us if we create unity front and center as we follow Jesus. So this morning, I'd like to explore the concept of unity for a few moments, what it is, what it's not, and some things to think about. 
Well, several people note unity is simply when there's a state of concord, when there's harmony and peace and an attitude of peacefulness. Unity happens when people realize their utter need for one another, like ligaments in a body that we're all interconnected. Now, unity does not mean all Christians think alike, but rather recognize and embrace an utter dependence upon Jesus and an interdependence upon ourselves with others. Now, recently, Christina Cleveland wrote a book titled Disunity in Christ. And in it, she speaks of the concept of the right and wrong kind of Christian. Boy, did I feel convicted when I read her words. And I still do. Here's a bit of what she writes. I've invested lots of time and energy in fostering relationships with people who have similar backgrounds, age, and education. With those who had similar theology, worshipped like me, and voted like me. And then I realized I believed there were the wrong kind of Christians and that many of us carry descriptions around of wrong and right kinds of Christians. She goes on to write, Maybe to you, a wrong Christian is one who attends a church that allows female leadership. Maybe a wrong Christian does not speak English, drives a Hummer, dresses like she's in a music video, is pro-choice, is pro-life, is gay, is an older white male, is pro-Israel. And to bring this notion into the very, this very day, I'd have to add, maybe we think the wrong kind of Christian is pro-Trump, is pro-Bernie, is a Democrat, is a Republican, is an Evangelical, or has lots of tattoos. And she continues, for the most part, I was happy to keep wrong Christians at bay, but there was just one big problem. As I got to know Jesus, I began to realize that this was not exactly what he had in mind when he invited all people to participate in his kingdom on earth. You see, Jesus had a habit of connecting with everybody, conservative, liberal, prostitutes, divorcees, children, politicians, lepers, minorities, celebrities, you name it. He was serious about connecting with every single person. And she also goes on to write, I'd like to be clear that I'm not saying the differences in the body of Christ are trivial or that we just forget substantive theological differences or that we just sing kumbaya. And I agree with what she writes next, but I've taken what she wrote next and I put it in my own words because I believe what is clear based on this notion of right and wrong Christians, I believe what is clear to me, even though it's convicting and hard, is that in the midst of our differences, that if we think and act and treat others as if there are right and wrong Christians, we are not following Jesus. I also believe this idea of right and wrong Christian is precisely the kind of thing that got Jesus into so much trouble. If you read the Gospels over and over and over again, we find it was the most passionate religious people that thought they were right and others were wrong who despised Jesus, went after Jesus, and had Jesus crucified precisely because he sat with those they considered to be the wrong kinds of people of faith. How dare Jesus do that, they said. How dare he say that, they said. 
How dare they hang out with those people of faith, they said. I'm not preaching at you, my friends. I'm preaching at me because this is darn hard stuff. And what's hard about it is sometimes the wrong kind of Christians who, to me, are very mean are not interested in the unity to which I believe we are all called. But we are called to it. And if I personally begin to throw labels around and classify Christians with whom I disagree on issues of substance, I am standing on extraordinarily shaky ground. Every year we celebrate Ash Wednesday here. It begins the season of Lent. We put ashes on our foreheads for those of you who are here. And what do we say to one another? You are dust. And to dust you shall return. And here's what one person writes about Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday reminds us that we are not God. We are zip without God. We are dust without God. We cannot know all there is to know about God. How possibly can our articulations about God with human language that comes from we who are dust put us in the position of knowing everything? The point of all this is if we are dust and zip without God, then there is not much room in our lives for too much certainty about too many things too much pride or thinking that we know it all. There's no room for that. Our response to the gift of life can only be one of humility. Unity happens when there's humility. Ego, big ego, breeds division, disunity, and discord. And maybe what Jesus asks us to do is to travel the path of humility and to discover the joy and the blessings and the freedom and the release of knowing just how imperfect we are. To get over ourselves and to live humbly dependent upon God. God's invitation to humility is an extraordinary gift. Yes, we can have opinions. Yes, there is truth. Yes, we can debate. Yes, there are real issues. But we need to be very, 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 very careful in how we approach the one who is dramatically different than we are. Because if we are not careful, then we are doing precisely what Jesus said, do not do this. Do you remember the story in which Jesus talks about the speck in the other person's eye while we're ignoring the plank in our own? Again, this is hard stuff. But then, week one of this series, love is hard stuff. Why do people poo-poo love as if it's easy stuff? It's the hardest thing there is. Forgiveness is hard stuff. Unity is hard stuff. But following Jesus, if we take that path seriously, is utterly hard stuff. But it's wonderful and joyful and amazing to engage this brutally difficult, impossible task of being a follower of Jesus. Just a few more points to keep in mind. Put two people together in any setting, there's going to be conflict. Put people together in a community of faith, there's going to be conflict. Put two people together, and both at times will let each other down, period. 
put people together in a community of faith. And everyone in that community of faith is going to let other people down in that community of faith. And when we're humble enough to acknowledge this truth and accept it, then we're more likely to approach divisions and differences and conflict with more listening than talking, more humility than ego, more understanding than judgment, more forgiveness than holding on to grudges, and more of a willingness to let go and move on. Don't we all need Jesus even though we may be dramatically different? Last thing. 1950s, there was a field experiment set up. I think it was in Oklahoma. 22 boys were picked up by a bus and taken to a 200-acre summer camp. The boys didn't know each other. And at the camp, the boys were broken up into two groups. Each group stayed in a separate area. And for a period of time, each separate group bonded, hiking, swimming, sports of all kinds, all kinds of summer fun. Well, eventually, there was a series of competitive events set up between these two groups for a period of several days. The groups were told, one of you will be a winner, the other is going to be a loser. Can't both be right. Can't both win. And as the days of the competition went on, the boys characterized their own group in very positive terms. We're right. We're good. We're great. We're wonderful. We're awesome. The boys characterized the other group very negatively. They don't know what they're talking about. Bad people. Wrong people. They engaged in taunting and name-calling, caustic behavior toward one another. Well, the simple conclusion of the study was when you put people into a group and stir the pot, there's going to be conflict. And when you compete for resources, there's going to be conflict. And in thinking about this study, it strikes me in many ways that Christians are like a bunch of boys going to summer camp. We get into our own groups. We get into groupthink. There's hostility, conflict, name-calling, and negativity directed toward those that are not in our group. And in essence, sometimes we who are Christian act as if there's not enough Jesus to go around for us all. There are no winners and losers. Thousands of years ago, when there was fighting and conflict between early Jesus followers, Paul wrote this. He said, we're not fighting against each other. Remember, our battle is not against each other, but it's against evil. It's against all the mighty powers in the dark world. It's against evil. And Paul, in essence, was telling these early Christians, stop fighting, unify. That battle is not between yourselves, it's against evil. And when you fight against each other, Paul writes, Evil wins. And that's what's happening to Christianity today. I invite each of us to take Christian unity seriously. For us each to ask ourselves, what can I do as Robert? What can you do as a human being, wherever you are, to not engage in divisiveness? Hostility, caustic comments, put-downs, division. What can I do, what can you do to promote a sense of unity and peacefulness right around you and me? More specifically, how can I work, how can we work to make the chapel a place of unity 
even though there are differences among us. My hope for the chapel, as I've said many times before, is that when I look at any one pew, I will see a Democrat sitting next to a Democrat, sitting next to a America Great Again bumper sticker, next to Go Bernie, next to a black man, next to a gay couple, next to a, a, a cowboy, next to somebody who just soon burned the whole down pew down. <laughs> that is the kingdom of God. When we gather around those differences, and fall on our knees in humility and worship Jesus. That's the kingdom of God, and that's what Jesus calls us to do. How can I take what we've been talking about these last few weeks? How can I take, how can we take the love of God and others and ourselves out into our spheres of influence? How can we take forgiveness of ourselves, others, out into our spheres of influence? How can we do the same with unity? These are really important questions, and we can make a big difference, and this is hard stuff. And if I'm pointing the finger, I'm pointing it at myself, because this is really hard stuff. So as we think about this and other questions, when we cross the bridge today and go back out into the world, let's spend a moment imagining. Imagining households, imagining churches, Imagining neighborhoods, imagining businesses, imagining nations, imagining this small mountain village where unity is the way. And let's not just work on such imagining, but let's work hard on how we're going to act around those we encounter to make a change. Amen.